There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. It was four days before the 2016 election when The Wall Street Journal published this report. National Enquirer shielded Donald Trump from Playboy Models' affair allegation. The Journal was the first to report that the National Enquirer paid a woman named Karen McDougal $150,000 in August of 2016 in what is known as a catch and kill. Basically, the Enquirer bought McDougal's story about her romantic relationship with Donald Trump in 2006 And then the Enquirer killed it. It never went to press. In any other news cycle, this story would have been a bombshell. But in the last week of a wild campaign, the McDougal story got very little attention. First of all, the country was still reeling from the release of Trump's Access Hollywood tape, which had happened a month earlier. Just days before, FBI Director James Comey had announced the FBI was taking another look at Hillary Clinton's emails. And stories were already swirling about an FBI investigation that had been opened into Donald Trump and his campaign's ties to Russia. So a lot was going on. And the hush money payment, the catch and kill situation involving Karen McDougal, that all got lost in the fog. Lost, but not forgotten. Because that story, that campaign finance violation, would come back to haunt President Trump in 2018. And this time, people paid attention. The date was January 12, 2018. It was almost exactly one year into Donald Trump's presidency. Trump was already under federal investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller over his campaign's connections to a Russian influence operation. And on that day, the Wall Street Journal broke the news and we first heard the name Stormy Daniels. Here's the headline. Trump lawyer arranged $130,000 payment for adult film stars silence. A Trump lawyer and a fixer named Michael Cohen had paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 in the waning days of the 2016 campaign to buy Miss Daniels silence about her alleged affair with Donald Trump. Cohen was later reimbursed by President Trump, who was now in the White House. And all of a sudden, that hush money payment to Karen McDougal back in 2016, that all came back into focus. And it caught the attention of prosecutors in New York. The Manhattan district attorney was reportedly thinking of bringing criminal charges, but federal prosecutors were also interested in opening their own investigation into all this. According to reports, the feds basically told the Manhattan prosecutors to back off. And we know now how that ended. After conducting their own federal investigation, prosecutors in New York threw the book at Michael Cohen. Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018 to multiple charges, including campaign finance violations for those two hush money payments. Cohen went to prison for over a year and he served additional time in home confinement. And in 2019, Michael Cohen testified to Congress about those payments. Firm that the testimony that you are about to give is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Let the record show that the witness answered in the affirmative. I am providing the committee today with several documents. 
and these include a copy of a check Mr. Trump wrote from his personal bank account after he became president to reimburse me for the hush money payments I made to cover up his affair with an adult film star and to prevent damage to his campaign. And even though federal prosecutors had said in court that Cohen acted at the direction of individual one, a.k.a. Donald Trump, despite that astonishing admission, they shut their investigation in 2019. Prosecutors in the district attorney's office, however, under District Attorney Cy Vance, they decided to pick up the investigation, pick it up back all over again. Fast forward two years and a new district attorney was sworn in, a man named Alvin Bragg. And it was assumed that Mr. Bragg would continue Cy Vance's criminal investigation. But that was not what happened. Roughly two months into Alvin Bragg's tenure, two top prosecutors on his team abruptly resigned, citing their disdain for the district attorney's decision to drop the investigation into Trump's false business records, including those investigations related to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. One even said Trump was guilty of numerous felonies. And that was that. We assumed that the case looking into Trump's, Trump's hush money payments to two women, we assumed that was all over. The end finished. Until the New York Times reported this past November that the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, was, yes, looking, into, looking to jumpstart that case. And jumpstart he did. In the months since that report, a who's who of Trump's inner circle have reportedly either met with Manhattan prosecutors or testified before a grand jury when impaneled by Alvin Bragg. The list is names you know. Hope Hicks, Kellyanne Conway, David Pegger of the National Enquirer, Michael Cohen, who, by the way, made 19 separate visits. It has been a parade of Trump insiders who have made their way into the Manhattan DA's office. What became known among prosecutors in the DA's office is the zombie case, because it would apparently never die. Well, tonight, that zombie case is back in a big way. The New York Times reports this evening that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg has signaled to Trump's attorneys that a criminal indictment of the former president may be forthcoming. Here it is, quote, the Manhattan DA's office recently signaled to Trump's lawyers that he could face criminal charges for his role in the payment of hush money to a porn star. The strongest indication yet that prosecutors are nearing an indictment of the former president. The prosecutors offered Trump the chance to testify next week before the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the potential case. Such offers almost always indicate an indictment is close. It would be unusual for the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, to notify a potential defendant without ultimately seeking charges against him. The Times also reports that at least six individuals have already appeared before the grand jury. NBC News confirms the reporting tonight that Trump was told he could appear before the grand jury, but we have not confirmed that they have signaled to Trump's lawyers that he could be facing criminal charges. Despite the former president calling tonight's report completely insane, it is undeniable that if true, the New York Times reporting this evening is monumental. It may represent for the very first time in American history that a former president may be criminally charged. Joining us now are Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and professor at the University of Michigan School of Law and Neil and the great Neil Katyal, who actually needs no introduction. So let us go right to you both. And I will start with you first, Neil, in terms of how you are reading this reporting. The Times is pretty aggressive, saying very clearly they believe that uh, an indictment could be 
coming it's is on its way. The Washington Post is a little bit more circumspect. NBC has not confirmed that an indictment is on its way, but indeed Trump has been offered the chance to testify in front of this grand jury. How do you read the situation? Right. So there are two possibilities, Alex. The Post says, well, it signifies the end of the investigation. The New York Times says it signifies an indictment is likely. I think both are possible. I think we're reading tea leaves here at best, but I think it means indictment is more likely. And I think that for two reasons. One is that the evidence against Donald Trump, you know, actually counts for something. And it's really bad. You know, what he did with Stormy Daniels and the like. And the Manhattan district attorney here has paused the investigation before. In fact, it looked like it was shut down. Then something restarted it. The restart to me is telling because you're not going to do that, particularly, uh, you know, in an open and reopen an investigation into the former president of the United States, unless you're really pretty sure you have the goods. So the fact that it's restarted to me makes it more likely that it's leaning toward indictment. Um, the argument on the other side is this. There's a co- section in the New York Code 190.50, and that says that a defense attorney can tell the district attorney hey, I want to assert my client's right to possibly testify before the grand jury. So please give me notice so I can give that option to her or him, my client. It could be that that's what's happened here, that the Trump uh, you know, defense team has told the district attorney that. And now the district attorney is just saying, OK, I'm near the end of my grand jury investigation. If mm. you want to come in, you can come in. It's certainly possible. I think that's what's driving the post story, though they don't go into all the detail about the code and stuff. But I think it's less likely. Uh, uh, Barb, how do you read this? I mean, we do know that Michael Cohen, he has not testified before that grand jury as yet, but he has had 19 meetings in the Manhattan DA's office. Kelly and Conway, Hope Hicks, all brought in. We're not sure which one of those characters has just had meetings or actually testified. But given the level of um, witnesses that are being called, if you will, do you I mean, I would ask you to read the same tea leaves that Neil is. Yeah, I, I think that it, it suggests to me that they are at the end of the investigation. You know, New York law requires that the prosecutors at least invite the target in to testify. But you're not going to invite that person in until you are at the very end, because before you in, in interview someone who's the target of an investigation, you want to be as informed as you can be about that investigation. So you would talk to everybody else first. So this means he's the last witness and they've reached that point. That means they've talked to everybody that they plan to talk to. I would also expect that if the decision were not to charge Donald Trump, there would be no need to invite him in. It's a big deal to invite a a target into the grand jury, especially when it's the former president. You would not go to that trouble if all you're going to do is decline to bring charges. So although it is speculation, it seems to me that if this reporting is true, that Donald Trump has been invited in to testify, then that speculation seems pretty sound that it means an indictment is not far off. Neil, how strong do you think this case is? I mean, it's certainly been litigated in the court of public opinion. We've heard a lot from Michael Cohen back in the day. But the to actually make this a felony charge, it requires some deft legal maneuvering, does it not? 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's an obvious misdemeanor here in that Trump was was paying the it looks like these payments of one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to Stormy Daniels and then, um, you know, lying about it. So the question is, does it give rise to the level of criminal intent necessary for it to be a felony? And in order for it to be a felony, he has to be knowingly concealing that state crime from investigation. Now, my gut is that's not going to be a very difficult thing to prove. This is not like some other things in which there aren't financial records. Here there are. Um, there will be some stuff about attorney-client privilege and the like. Um, you know, Trump was acting through his attorneys when he made these payments. But at the end of the day, I think that the evidence here so far looks pretty damning. And I think if I'm Donald Trump at this point, you know, i be pretty worried because these, uh, you know, this is a hard thing, I think, for him to get out of. Uh, Barbara, I wonder what you think of some of the reporting we have from Rolling Stone about a possible legal avenue for Trump to pursue by saying that the hush money payments had nothing to do with his campaign and everything to do with hiding his affair from his wife. I'll read an excerpt from Rolling Stone. Multiple Trump advisors including at least one of his lawyers, have told him in recent months that he has a stronger case if he argues the payments to Stormy Daniels had nothing to do with the election. Instead, these advisors would have Trump argue that the payments were entirely about preventing conflict with his wife, Melania. We know that was something that was on the table back in the day, and Trump didn't want to pursue it because basically Melania was very angry at him. and It would have been an awkward conversation in their marriage. But do you think that that's a viable defense here? No, I think you can believe that to be true, but it's not a valid legal defense. That's because both things can be true at the same time. Perhaps that was his overriding motive, was to keep this information from his wife. But if there was a concealing of campaign expenditures, then that's a crime, regardless of why he did it, whether it was to protect his wife or protect himself from the wrath of his wife. If he failed to disclose a campaign expenditure, then that can be that underlying crime uh, that Neil was speaking of that can turn a misdemeanor into a felony. So, you know, it's sort of like when um, someone uh, accepts a bribe to vote in favor of a contract on the city council or something like that. And they say, I was going to vote for it anyway because it was good. But, yeah, I did ex ex accept the bribe. Um, that's enough. You, you can have both motives. You can have mixed motives. And that's still enough to constitute a crime. Um, Neil, I think, you know, given the amount of the number of investigations uh, of, of fairly great magnitude in terms of, a, you know, a special counsel looking into whether Trump incited a riotous mob to undermine democracy on January 6th. I think to a lot of people who've watched the, the Trump's legal foibles unfold, the Stormy Daniels hush money payments seem like a throwback. And it's surprising that A, Alvin Bragg is still pursuing this, and that B, if we're going to, you know, look at this in the long lens of history, that the first, you know, person to charge a former president with, uh, to make, to levy a criminal indictment against a former president would be Alvin Bragg for this case. Do you think that there is any discussion with the feds about whether or not he moves forward with an indictment, given the expectations that other criminal charges are in the wings? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think that you have here, Alex, uh, you have uh, two different federal investigations of Trump, one about what he did on January 6th, the other about the documents that he stole and put at Mar-a-Lago. And then you have two state investigations, one in Georgia about the fake electors and finding 11,780 votes and the like, and the other, this New York investigation we're talking about. The New York investigation does have a bit of a federal overlay because, as you were reporting a moment to go, the federal justice department was looking into some of these things. So I could imagine a conversation between the state and the federal government about that specific piece. But I don't think that there's a bigger conversation about uh, Bragg, the district attorney saying, hey, what are you going to do about January 6th, the stolen documents, or even a conversation with the Georgia and New York, uh, you know, folks, because they're very separate investigations. And so I really do think it's like a race at this point to see is it going to be Fannie Willis in Georgia or Alan Bragg in um, in New York that's going to be the first to indict Donald Trump? I mean, regardless of who's the first, it looks like that person very well may not be the last person to indict Donald Trump. Yeah, Barbara. So we're looking at a, a future that could possibly w- be one where you have the Manhattan DA going forward with criminal charges. You have Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA going forward with criminal charges. Maybe you have a special counsel going forward with criminal charges on the Mar-a-Lago documents case and then potentially en- more criminal charges relating to January 6th. I mean, that is possible, it sounds like at this point. Yeah, it really could be quite chaotic. You know, in, in, in addition, you'll have uh, potentially Donald Trump defending himself in four separate criminal cases simultaneously while also running for president. Uh, could be really incredibly interesting. And I think there's a good chance the two federal cases are charged as separate cases, maybe one out of Florida and one out of uh, D.C. So he could be defending himself in you know four different venues while that's going on. You know, certainly unprecedented, yes, uh, but so has been the conduct of the former president. So I think uh, 2024 promises to be quite a year. <laughs> That's an understatement, if there was one. Barb McQuaid and Neil Katyal, thank you both so much, my friends, for joining me this evening. Thanks, Alex. Still to come this hour, we are waiting for a ruling by a federal judge that could change access to an abortion medication as we know it. But one of the nation's biggest retailers has already made its own controversial decision. That's coming up. But next, President Biden is dropping the hammer on congressional Republicans. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre joins me. Stick around. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Since the start of the year, President Biden has been in a standoff with congressional Republicans over our nation's version of a public retirement program, Social Security and Medicare. Both problems, both programs are hugely popular. One poll earlier this year found that 70 percent of Americans oppose making cuts to Medicare and Social Security. Just 17 percent of Americans support making those cuts. And so President Biden has made protecting those programs a centerpiece of his political messaging. He even got the entire Republican conference to publicly commit to not cutting Medicare and Social Security during that nationally televised back and forth during the State of the Union. You've probably seen some version of that exchange in the past month. But what you might not have seen is what President Biden did after that. The president followed up that speech by touring key states like Florida and Wisconsin and waving around a copy of Republican Senator Rick Scott's plan to sunset Medicare and Social Security. During one event in Senator Scott's home state of Florida, President Biden put a copy of the senator's deeply unpopular plan on every single seat. So President Biden has made holding Republicans feet to the fire on this issue a top priority, and he's largely succeeded. Republicans are in a corner on this. The New York Times reports today that Republicans are now trying to build support for a budget that would make deep cuts without raising taxes or touching Social Security and Medicare, which is, mathematically speaking, extremely difficult. Without any of those big ticket items to choose from, the GOP is stuck making deep cuts to things like health care, food assistance and housing programs all of which is politically very risky to say nothing about the actual ethics here. And today, the president has delivered a sort of coup de grace in this standoff by releasing his budget for the year. The Biden plan calls for new taxes on the ultra-wealthy, as well as oil and gas companies, an increase in funding for programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act, and taking on drug companies to lower the price of prescription drugs. Today at a union hall in Philadelphia, President Biden laid out his priorities and made clear that he is ready for a fight on all of this. They seem to say they're not going to cut Social Security or Medicare. Well, like I said, well, what about Medicaid? What about the Affordable Care Act? What about veterans benefits? What about law enforcement? What about aid to rural communities? What about support for our military? What will they make, the, how they make these numbers add up? Well, here's the deal. If MAGA Republicans in Congress try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, I'm not going to let them. Now, even if Kevin McCarthy could somehow wave a wizard's wand to produce a budget that made the necessary spending cuts without touching entitlements or raising taxes, there is still the very real problem of whether or not that budget could even pass his house, given the Republicans' razor-thin majority and tendency to, shall we say, fight among themselves. Meanwhile, the country is barreling toward a debt default, a crisis, by the way, that is of Republican making. Joining us now is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, it's good to see you. Um, I assume you don't have a pocket version of Rick Scott's plan to sunset Medicare and Social Security, <laughs> though I'm sure time. it's never far <laughs> from <laughs> front of mind. Um, it really feels like the president has for lack of a better term, dropped a hammer on uh, Republicans in these negotiations by really, it seems like, taking Medicare and Social Security off the table. I wonder whether you have any indication of when Kevin McCarthy may be ready to drop his own budget and start to negotiate with the president. Have you any sense of a timeline here? 
Well, I'll say this. When you what you saw today from this president is and he says this many times, which is don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I will tell you what you value. And those words are so critical and so important because that's what the president laid out today. And he laid out a, pro a budget that he's incredibly proud of and that is going to deliver for the American people. Give them a little breathing room. And you talk, you're asking me about Social Security and Medicare. He is going to continue to make sure we protect and strengthen that. He's going to reduce the deficit by by nearly $3 trillion over 10 years by making sure the, the ultra-wealthy pay their fair share. We're talking about giving families a little bit of a breathing room by putting more money into education and child care, building on the investments that we've made over the last two years. When you think about the bipartisan infrastructure deal, when you think about, uh, when you think about the Chips and Science Act, all of those things are so critical. And let's not forget, these are also uh, items that 81 million of the American people who voted for him in 2020 support. So yes, we are going to ask the Republicans in Congress, what is your budget? What do you value? Show the American people what is in incredibly important to you that you want to do. And we've heard, we've heard, they've been very clear about this, Alex. You laid this out so well that they want to cut Social Security. They want to cut Medicare. Yes, the State of the Union was so brilliant what the president was able to do uh, to, to get to take that off the table. But they've also been talking out of the both sides of their mouths on this. And so we want to see. We've been very transparent with the American people. Why can't they do so? What is it that they believe? What is it that they want to show the American people? And we're ready. We're ready to have that discussion. I mean, I just think the phrase, what is it that they believe, is a philosophical question that the GOP might not be able to answer. And I wonder if the White House is at all worried about the disarray in the Republican caucus. First of all, the math is not on their side. The cuts they would have to make setting aside entitlements and raising taxes are draconian and kind of insane. And then getting, to agree, get that, getting them to agree that this is the budget they actually want to propose seems like a real heavy lift, given how unaligned, shall we say, the fractious members of the caucus are. And yet, you know, these negotiations are important because we're barreling towards a debt ceiling default. And I guess, like, are, are you concerned that the Republicans can't get their act together and, and that that will have a very meaningful effect on the American economy in the form of the debt ceiling? So I, there's a saying that I heard recently, and I'll share it with you, which is not my circus, not my monkey, right? That is their, <laughs> if they can't get themselves together, that's on them. What we're going to focus on is the American people. We want to make sure that we are delivering and being incredibly transparent. And look, we're going to continue to call out. Republicans, we're going to continue to say, show me your budget. Let us know what it is that you value, what it, what it is that you want to deliver for the American people. And as it relates to uh, the, the deficit, the uh, the default um, and lifting that the, the, the ceiling, that is something that is their constitutional duty to do. That is something that was done in the last administration three times in a bipartisan way. There is no negotiation there that should be done without conditions. Now, as we're talking about being fiscally responsible, this is something that we want to see. What is it that they want to negotiate? Because we can't negotiate in thin air. So show us the paper, show us your budget, and then we can have that discussion.
show us the money or how you want to spend it. I got to ask you because (laughs) the White House has been fairly um, outspoken about what's happening in certain Republican circles, specifically what's going on over at Fox News, where Tucker Carlson is trying to whitewash the events of January 6th. Uh, The president tweeted more than 140 officers were injured on January 6th. I've said before, how dare anyone diminish or deny the hell they went through? I stand with the Capitol Police. I hope Republicans feel ashamed for what was done to undermine our law enforcement. Um, Does the White House consider Fox News a news organization? So I'll say this. When you look at the depositions that have been out there uh, recently, it even states from Fox News leadership that they do not see Tucker Carlson's show as news or even truthful. That is coming from the Fox leadership. That's not coming from me. That is coming from them. And I also would quote, I'll paraphrase here, what the chief of Capitol Police said. He said, when you watch, essentially, when you watch Tucker Carlson as it relates to January 6th, it is misleading and it is misinformation as with the conclusion of what happened on January 6th, the attacks that happened. As you saw from the president's statement, 140 officers were injured. Nearly 140 officers were injured on that day. It was an attack on our democracy. It was an attack on our constitution. And you cannot whitewash that. Tucker Carlson cannot whitewash that. Anyone who doesn't see with their own eyes what occurred cannot whitewash that. And so the president is going to stand with the police officers. He's going to stand for truth. And clearly that is not what Tucker Carlson believes in. So I'm going to say that sort of sounds like the White House doesn't think Fox is a news organization, but we'll, we got to leave it there. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, I so deeply appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. We have much more ahead tonight as we await a federal court ruling that could ban an abortion drug nationwide. All eyes are on the pharmacies that stock those drugs and what their next move is. And as we just said, Tucker Carlson says Capitol rioters behaved respectfully on January 6th. Could his argument help the rioters in court? Stay with us. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new video released this week is giving us a fresh look at what happened in the Capitol on January 6th. In it, you can see the chaos as rioters trashed the Capitol hideaway office of Republican Senator Jim Risch of Idaho. These offices are in unlisted areas of the Capitol, and they're designated just for senators. Rioters rifled through the desks and cut bags open as they looked for, quote, intel. They also defecated in his suite. So that is noteworthy. 
But if you were expecting any comment from Jim Risch, the senator whose office was broken into and vandalized, well, when NBC News reached out to Senator Risch, he replied, I don't do interviews on January 6th, but thanks. Thanks anyway. Now, the reason we are even seeing this video of the ransacking is because it's an exhibit in the trial of a January 6th defendant. And this video evidence happens to be dropping at the exact same time as Fox host Tucker Carlson is launching his own counter narrative of what happened that day and suggesting that January 6th was just a chaotic sightseeing adventure rather than, say, mobs of people ransacking congressional offices and defecating in them. And now Tucker Carlson's version of events, surprise, is gaining traction with defendants who are citing it in court. Today, an attorney for a proud boy on trial for seditious conspiracy said in a court filing that the footage establishes that the Senate chamber was never violently breached and, in fact, was treated respectfully by January 6th protesters. The senators on January 6th could have continued proceedings. Joining us now is Ryan Riley, NBC News justice reporter. Ryan, thanks for being here tonight. What can you tell us about how the DOJ is handling all of this brand new Tucker Carlson counter narrative that seems to be embraced by the defendants in these January 6 cases? Well, you know, they've, they've put over a ton of evidence already, and it's really been a challenge, I think, uh, just for both the uh, the Justice Department and for defense attorneys uh, to handle. This has been a growing issue, really, uh, the amount of, of discovery. And in the particular case of January 6th, it's just really over the top because you had so much evidence generated by uh, the defendants themselves who were recording themselves in selfies uh, com- while they committed crimes. Uh, and you just have all these you know, data dumps from phones that were seized uh, during uh, the court process. And it's just a ton of information for them to have to go through. But what it allows you to do is sort of put together uh, all of the pieces of the puzzle of what happened uh, on January 6th and sort of put together a mosaic. And, you know, there's a ton of uh, evidence, but it does sort of become a choose your own adventure uh, scenario, because if you wanted to make January 6th look really calm, that's really easy to cherry pick things and say, oh, look at this this moment over here without showing any other context, which is exactly what Tucker Carlson uh, did this week. You know, he he just lied, flat out lied in his presentation where he said, you know, that there was some mystery about how, uh, about how that individual, um, uh, QAnon shaman went into the Capitol. And no, in fact, you can actually trace him, his steps on the Western side of the Capitol. There was zero doubt that he was, <laughs> that he knew that he was not allowed in there because he was walking through, uh, you know, the uh, inauguration platform with this mob as the cops were trying to hold them back, um, and was amongst the first people to go in the door after it was broken through with that loud alarm going off. And then, you know, but now there's millions of people who think that, oh, uh, the, the Capitol police snuck this guy in a back door and gave him a tour of the Capitol. And that's just not what happened. They were overwhelmed that day. Uh, it was a chaotic situation. They were vastly outnumbered. Um, and they made some strategic decisions uh, that about uh, how they could best sort of keep the scenario calm and try to de-escalate it. And, and you know, unfortunately, that video is, uh, you know, being being cherry picked now um, to make this look like this was some sort of calm event, when in reality, uh, it was chaos. Well, it's, I mean, also, all these defendants had access to most of this footage already, did they not? That's right. Yeah, most of the footage, they turned, you know, the Justice Department has turned over uh, thousands of hours of this video. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, because 
a lot of the discovery that a lot of these defendants are trying to bring up has nothing at all to do with their cases. There's one defendant um, in particular who's representing himself pro se, and he's just made it his mission to get all of these, uh, as many videos out as he can, which on the one hand, you know, as a journalist, you kind of appreciate because I think we should, you know, I want to see as many materials as we can um, from January 6th to help could put together a complete picture uh, of what was happening. But, you know, his mission has sort of been to pre- draw up all these conspiracy theories. And, you know, that amount of raw material uh, does allow a lot of people with with bad motives to uh, to create sort of the the story that they want to tell about that day um, while ignoring all these other factors of what was happening, um, you know, more broadly on, on, on January 6th. Well, undeniably, it seems like between Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's a movement, at least this week, to sort of reframe the quote unquote victims of January 6th as the defendants themselves. Right. We know that Marjorie Taylor Greene, I believe, um, have sent a letter to the D.C. mayor over the treatment of January 6th in D.C. jail. They are going there to visit them to check on how they're doing. Um, Do you expect a fight between the Oversight Committee, which Marjorie Taylor Greene sits on and James Comer does as well, and the D.C. mayor over this? And do you have any intel on exactly how the January 6th detainees defendants are being treated in D.C. jail? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Just these sudden criminal justice reformers come out of nowhere, right? Um, you know, uh, suddenly they care about the conditions in the D.C. jail, which have been going on for for decades, really. Um, but suddenly, you know, a bunch of, of white people, uh, Trump supporters are locked up there and there's all of this public interest. So um, I think that, you know, that's <laughs> frankly, it could be something that'll be good overall for for the jail to get a little extra scrutiny there because they've had some longstanding issues. But honestly, the, there's two facilities over there. And the one that uh, the January 6th defendants have been, are being held in is the better of the two. And that's what these uh, these examinations by the Marshals Service uh, have found out uh, over the course of uh, of this uh, of the period which they're being held. But I think you know more broadly, there's a lot of misinformation about how many defendants are being held. And you know, there's this use of the word political prisoner, saying you know that a thousand people have been arrested. And I, when you talk to a lot of people, as I, as I did uh, last year or the year before, when uh, there was a rally in support of a lot of these defendants, so they were under this impression that. All of these people are, were being locked up pre-trial on misdemeanors, and and that's just not what's happening. Each one of these individuals who is being held pre-trial has had an individualized assessment by a federal judge, by a federal magistrate judge, um, or a judge, or an appeals court even uh, about uh, whether or not they need to be held pre-trial. Unlike in a lot of states where people are held uh, simply because they cannot afford a certain amount of money to put up for bail, that doesn't happen in the federal system. Nobody is being held because they can't come up with a certain amount of cash. They're all being held because they. Have an individual assessment uh, about the danger that they pose to the community, the danger, uh, uh, the, the the extent of the evidence against them, um, and whether or not they uh, propose uh, they pose a threat uh, going forward. So that's something that a lot of people who have contact with the criminal justice system don't uh, don't really get. So you know they're on the lucky side of this, but they're acting as though uh, they're the victims when in reality, I, you know, they're getting something that a lot of people uh, in the criminal justice system don't. Well, we can thank the January 6th defendants for calling attention to the inequities of cash, the cash bail system. There's that. Ryan Riley, NBC News justice reporter. Thanks for your time, Ryan. We will be right back. For nearly three weeks now, members of our team have been hitting refresh on the docket for a federal case in Texas, anxiously awaiting a ruling from a Trump-appointed judge that could undo the FDA's approval of a drug used in the most common method of abortion. 
a drug known as mifepristone. Medication abortion accounts for more than half of the abortions performed in the U.S. And mifepristone is the key component of medication abortion. These pills are safe, they are convenient, and they are significantly less invasive than surgical abortion. But alone, Trump-appointed judge in Texas could issue a ruling that effectively bans mifepristone nationwide at any moment now. And yet the forces that want to ban all abortion by every method, everywhere, all at once, are not content to wait for a favorable ruling. Attorneys general of 21 states have basically intimidated one of the nation's largest pharmacy chains, Walgreens, into agreeing not to dispense mifepristone in their states. But here is the thing. Medication abortion is still legal in several, several of those states, including Alaska, Iowa, Kansas, and Montana. So Walgreens has essentially been bullied by anti-abortion attorneys general beyond where the law actually lies. A representative for Walgreens told NBC that this is a very complex and influx area of the law, and they are taking that into account, and that Walgreens will only dispense mifepristone in those jurisdictions where it is legal to do so if they are certified by the FDA. And now the state of California, which, by the way, is not one of the states affected by the Walgreens decision, is punishing Walgreens. Yesterday, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced that his state will not renew a $54 million contract it has with the pharmacy, specifically because of Walgreens' decision on the abortion medication. Joining us now is the expert on all of this, Jessica Valenti, writer of the newsletter Abortion Every Day, which is, you know, such a presciently named uh, yeah. website because every day there's something new. Every single day there's too much to keep up with. <laughs> Jessica, how much of a gray area are these pharmacies actually in? They're not in a gray area. They had a very clear decision to make between patients and politics mm-hmm. and Walgreens chose politics. And now they're dealing with the consequences of that. And they're having a very, very bad week because of it. They're seeing their stock shares go down. They just lost a $54 million deal with California. And people are furious. People don't want corporations making their medical decisions yeah. for them. Do you? Is your expectation that the other major retailer, CVS, is going to do the opposite of Walgreens? I mean, how much do you think that the brouhaha over this has has chilled yeah. any moves CVS might if make. If you would have asked me a week ago, I would have said CVS is going to do the same thing. But now, because of the public outcry, I think that they're going to like hold their horses and wait and sort of see what happens and wait to get their certification. They're all sort of waiting for this FDA certification. Um, Walgreens jumped the gun a little bit and made this announcement. And so I think that CVS and, and other major pharmacies are going to use that as an excuse to wait and not say anything. The FDA certification, which is supposed to allow them to sell mm-hmm. this medication mm-hmm. over uh, not over the counter but is it over the counter no, no. it's not over the, it's not, i wish sorry, it was not over the counter, counter. It's, it's, without a, it's, it's without an in-person medical visit, without an right? in-person yes exactly uh my question is we are waiting for this ruling from this Tex- texas judge yeah. mr kesmark and that seems like it could further complicate this landscape by a lot right yeah can you walk me through what might happen if he does in fact say okay you cannot mifepristone is off the market i mean theoretically, it could be gone for everyone. It could be gone for pro-choice states as well. And that's what makes this decision so scary. Um, The Biden administration has sort of kept saying to folks, you know what, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. We're going to make sure that everyone has access to abortion medication. And we're all waiting to see what that means exactly. I think what they're referring to is that the FDA um, can keep it on the market, even if they have to do that whole process over again, proving it safe, even though it's been out there for 20 years. We know that it's safe. Um, it's it's a ridiculous 
sham situation. Honestly. Well, and it sets the table for them being able to do the same thing with misoprostol or any other medication. With anything, with anything. It sets a precedent that they can go back and do this with anything. And really, like, their evidence is not there. The lawsuit is bunk. It is just like the height of ridiculousness that we are in this position, especially when it comes to something like abortion medication, which is safe. And as you said, over 50 percent of people who are ending their pregnancies are using abortion medication. Do you sense that the that the White House has a plan? I mean, we can see this coming from a mile away. Right. And yeah. same with the, the Dobbs decision also. And I think a lot of people thought the Biden White House wasn't prepared for this. They weren't acting aggressively ahead of time. Do you sense that they are going to sort of make it so that the FDA can continue that, that, that Mifepristone can continue to be prescribed even if its ultimate future has is is one of a re-regulation. I mean, they better. They like <laughs> they I, they really faced so much deserved pushback after Roe was overturned, and if they don't have their stuff together on this one, it is going to be a real problem. And so, I am remaining optimistic. But I would love to hear more from them about what that is actually going to look like. What are they? What are they? literally going to do to make sure that people can get abortion medication because they can't now, right, in some states. Um, and so it's incredibly important that we hear from them. What about, um, I mean, the, the reality is that this is a political, I don't want to say winner because the stakes are so dire for but Americans, is. but it is Democrats want to have this fight. Yeah. Republicans do not seem to understand this is terrible for them politically. It is awful for them. And the midterm showed us that in every single poll that comes out shows the same thing and has for decades that Americans overwhelmingly want legal access to abortion, even in red states. And Republicans know that. And that's why they're doing these things like trying to make it harder to um, pass ballot measures, because they know that if voters have a say when it comes to abortion, they're going to come out on the pro-choice side every single time. Yeah, they want to keep abortion off the ballot because they know that juices turn out and they know where the American public where their opinion is on access to exactly choice. Jessica Valenti, abortion every day. We wish it wasn't such a quickly moving storm front. Thank you for your time and wisdom tonight. Thank you. That's our show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.